Hi everyone, and welcome to Talent Talks. I'm Rob Adams. In this episode, we're excited to be joined by two members of Broadview Talent Partners. Tracy McMillan is CEO and Managing Partner, and Christy Angel, Managing Partner in the Midwest office in Columbus, Ohio. Tracy has nearly 30 years of experience providing executive search, retention solutions, and leadership advisory services to clients. He has developed a strong focus within the affordable housing, nonprofit, community development, association, and middle market sectors, and established a track record of well-placed, long-tenured C-suite executives. Christy has spent over three decades engaging her community, building relationships, and advising leaders, all while transforming organizations. As managing partner, her focus is not only on helping clients identify their next best leader, but also coaching both clients and candidates through the onboarding and transition process. Today, we'll be discussing diversifying leadership within affordable housing and nonprofit sectors, uncovering effective strategies for expanding talent pipelines, and navigating today's competitive talent landscape. Tracy and Christy, welcome, and let's dive right in. Can you share some examples of how Broadview Talent Partners has successfully helped organizations in the affordable housing and nonprofit sectors attract diverse leaders and what strategies have proven most effective in expanding their talent pipelines? Well, you know, I'll take that, uh, Rob. You know, first and foremost, you know, our clients, um, they're conducting I mean, they're doing great work, right? In their communities, they're, um, you know, mission uh, focused and, and aligned. And our goal typically is to help them not only just, you know, recruit the best and the brightest uh, and effective leadership, but then we also, you know, kind of help them think about, you know, addressing the operational and the governance challenges that may be plaguing them. And, and oftentimes, right, they are looking for, our clients are looking for someone who, uh, can identify with those that they serve. And so, for example, uh, here in Columbus, in the community, with the Community Shelter Board, which is a collective impact organization for homelessness in the region, they uh, were an organization over 35 years old, and I had only had three leaders in the history of the organization. So history of long uh, tenured leaders, uh, you know, 10 plus years, uh, you know, serving the organization. But they were very clear when they decided to hire their next leader, and this was just last year, that they were looking for, um, they wanted a diverse talent pool. They wanted a leader who could identify with those that they were serving. And in Columbus, Ohio today, I just looked up the stat, over 80% of the people who are homelessness, homeless are either women women and or people of color. So it's women of color, but and or people of color. And they were looking for, um, you know, leaders that could identify with those that they serve, but also those that they work with in community because of the collective impact nature of their work. And largely a number of the leaders who are in the housing sector and doing the good work of uh, sheltering homeless people are people of color. Tracy, anything to add? Absolutely. So, uh, Rob, one of the things that we've noticed post George Floyd's murder is that many of our clients have almost in some ways the light bulb has gone off in terms of trying to bring in a leader that's reflective of the community that they serve and that the mission and services that they bring to the community. So many times when they call Broadview Talent Partners, they already have in mind based upon our heritage as a firm uh, and our history of presenting talent uh, um, of, of this ilk. 
that they would like to see a very diverse pool. Uh, a few other trends that have emerged that have led to uh, this opening as well is we are tend we tend to find that, that uh, get called on to do searches where we're replacing the long tenured leader. Uh, the long tenured leader has t historically been a minority. Um, they've been a baby boomer. Um, they've been around sometimes organizations 15, 20, 25 years or north. And so uh, we are operating under a mandate of change. And uh, during uh, in, in, in bringing that change, we're able to bring a, uh, a broad and diverse pool, um, sometimes not only within the sector of nonprofit sector, sometimes we're able to go and broaden and bring uh, talent outside the sector because they have transferable skills and they bring best practices uh, into nonprofits because nonprofits have historically been almost quasi governmental in terms of how they've employed and how they have promoted and how they have uh, retain people and some of those folks don't always have the level of agility and skill set that's needed for what the organization needs now and into the future as you look out into their you know three to five year uh strategic plan so uh that long tenure leader opening um will usually uh, lead to a an ex-gen or an experienced uh, millennial to come in and uh, bring uh, a new set of uh, ideas and a fresh set of skills uh into the organization um Christy, you want to talk about the nature of how we go about expanding those 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 talent pipelines, the proven strategies? Sure. You know, I, first of all, you know, Tracy always says uh, you can't have a diverse outcome without a diverse, uh, you know, pool, right? And so, you know, we uh, really work hard to make sure that we identify uh, the most qualified and diverse talent uh, to help you know fulfill our clients' needs. And, and then we have, you know, kind of our own proprietary network, candidates that we've placed, you know, clients that we've worked with, um, you know, referral sources and, and the like. And, you know, we kind of work our network and, uh, you know, we've created, we've worked hard to maintain that network and create it, create our network and maintain it. And so it's a natural outgrowth of who we are and the values we represent that we can identify diverse talent. And that really helps uh, kind of expand that pipeline. In addition, Rob, you know, we look at uh, a couple of, uh, of other factors. Uh, many of our clients want to hire sitting CEOs or executive mm -hmm. directors to replace the CEO or executive director. We um, will follow that trend, but we'll broaden and expand that trend. We look at strong number twos, whether it's a COO or a CFO, somebody that we know has runway and upside and the DNA, as well as the EQ to uh, be considered mm -hmm. uh, for their first CEO role. Everybody has to be a first time CEO at, at one point in time in their life. And sometimes it's good to capture somebody who has that 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 upward mobility and agility as opposed to just relying on those who have already sort of been there uh, and, and done that. In the case of um, one instance, uh, we'll use um, an example, Washburn Center for Children. Um, we were able in this instance to come in after a long tenured leader had hired a, um, a brilliant chief administrative officer uh, our client had asked us whether or not they should do a nationwide executive search to find their next leader. Uh, the CAO um, that was hired happened to be a man of color, African-American. He had been doing really well. And while he was not intentionally groomed to be the successor, what we uh, kind of partnered with our client to do, Rob, was to do an assessment of that internal candidate first. And we said if that assessment went well and we put him through the paces as if he were going through his own sort of individual executive search, 
um, and it did go well, that they could go ahead and make that hire as opposed to going outside and then potentially losing uh, a talented person inside because they thought that they were insulted by the fact that they were already there and there was no need to look on the outside. So we also encourage our clients to take a broad and comprehensive look at their organization and talent inside to see whether or not they have a diamond that's right in their own backyard. And if not, then obviously it's obviously a good idea to engage us to do a full, um, full-fledged, uh, you know, nationwide search. Christy, mm-hmm. talk about the succession planning aspect. Sure, and in that case, you know, as Tracy mentioned, it wasn't a true, you know, kind of success successor or success, succession planning activity. But Rob, so many times, and I, I led a nonprofit uh, organization, and I remember people saying to me when I was ready to leave, "Did you groom? Have you groomed your successor?" I had not groomed my successor. I had started to think about grooming my successor, but the talent pool, you know, wasn't, wasn't quite ready to leave the organization, but I, I certainly identified leaders, you know, who could possibly lead the organization, but a little bit later, um, you know, down the road. And so, you know, hence it was, it was necessary for a search, but, you know, I think in with succession planning and there are lots of firms and organizations that will help guide organizations through succession planning. You know, one of the first, the, the first things that must happen is, the CEO or the executive director and the board need to be aligned when there truly is internal talent that they want to move up. Because ultimately, that decision is not going to be with the outgoing CEO as to who gets hired. Typically, it's the board's decision. And if the board isn't aligned and the board is ready for someone new, someone who brings a different um, you know, perspective, if the, the needs of the organization are growing and changing, they may not identify the internal ta- talent as the right person to kind of, you know, move up in the, in the leadership pipeline. But I will say, looking at your pipe t- pipeline and see where you see diversity and, and kind of that diverse leadership and you can identify someone, you know, to kind of excel and move up, then I think that's, that's, it's very, it's appropriate, right? It's just, you just want alignment. And then, you know, you always as the leader want to invest in your leaders, right? Because, I, you know, I used to always think, well, I'm their coach, really, right? We were talking about sports earlier. I'm their coach. Right. And so they may not, they may not lead this organization, or maybe they'll lead a smaller organization and they'll come back to, to lead this organization. So investing in your time, um, but also making sure that if there is a su- succession plan and it's clear and clearly communicated that, you know, you have to be careful if, if it's not, right, and people think that they should rise to, uh, to the next position, um, you know, there, there can be turnover. People feel like they're not wanted. You have these, you have losses and suffer losses inside the organization. And younger, younger folks, folks younger than Tracy and I, we're not going to get into where we fall in the, in the whole generational scheme of things, but, um, you know, ex-gens and millennials, they want to know where their opportunities to excel. Where are the opportunities, right? If they don't see the opportunities and it's not clear, sometimes they want it very quickly. I always tell them, be patient, but they will leave the organization and you will lose your talent and you'll have, you know, some, some brain drain. And so, you know, as a leader in an organization, regular opportunities for feedback, communicate with people who may be uh, possible successors, identify the strengths and the weaknesses, but also, you know, tell them like, here are some developmental opportunities and get them into those opportunities so that they can truly, you know, be the successor. It's really, it's just very important. And and Tracy, I know you've had, you know, kind of 
some even more experienced than I, just with the long tenured leader, replacing the long tenured leader, kind of moving into, you know, the CEO and waiting and some other experiences that also are kind of in alignment with what we're discussing. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I think we covered those fairly well already. Rob, I think we can move on to the to the next question. Uh, a just wonderful, detailed answer on what is a, a very important topic, and I, I know our, our listeners agree. Are there specific tools or approaches that you find particularly effective in today's competitive talent market? Oh, yes. Lots of <laughs> tools. Lots of tools in the tool in the toolbox. Um, you know, the first thing I would say um, you know, especially in the nonprofit uh, search world, right? Oftentimes we're dealing with search committees. And so we want our search committees to be successful. And so that goes, you know, what goes into that is really understanding the role of a search committee, um, you know, that the search committee, it takes, you know, from start to finish, it may say take six to nine months, could be shorter, but I think people need to plan on that, right? They have to plan their own careers because most of these people in the search committee, they have their own uh, roles and responsibilities. In addition to this volunteer, uh, typically it's a volunteer um, experience, there needs to be a search committee chair that has experience um, being, you know, a search committee uh, participant. Uh, sometimes you're going to have co-chairs, um, you know, they have to understand they're going to wear a number of hats. And, you know, there is a lot of herding of cats uh, as well. You're wearing hats and you're herding cats. Um, <laughs> I like to say, so we, we here in, in, in the Columbus, uh, Ohio area, we have a little formula that is, I think, you know, been part of our success on a number of searches, probably not just a Columbus thing, but we like to own it. And it is, you have your chair of the board, your vice chair and your past chair or your vice chair, your incoming chair. So you have three you know, kind of levels of leadership that understand the organization and understand kind of, you know, what it's going to take to kind of move the organization forward. Ideally, we like to see uh, always an odd number because we don't want to have a tie, you know, when you have to get to a vote on that candidate, you want to make sure that you, you don't have a, a tie, so to speak. Ideally, five to seven people in the search committee, nine if you, if you really need to have, you know, some additional members. I always say you want to, want to have somebody that understands the fundraising, the finance, you know, and, and good business practices, right? Nonprofit is a business. So people who understand running a business um, and understand the mission of the organization. And then um, I would say, you know, likely not to include senior staff um, or the outgoing leader, uh, but but find a role for them. There is a role for them. And we have, you know, all kinds of opportunities for that in our searches, of course. And then um, community partners. Oftentimes nonprofits need or want to have community partners uh, or interested parties kind of serving on the search committee. I also, you know, advise search committee members to be careful with that because you are dealing with a high degree of confidentiality, usually NDAs, et cetera. And, you know, it's hard for people to keep secrets. It's hard for people sometimes to, you know, not share or not have a, a candidate, you know, kind of in the in the race. And and you need to kind of navigate around that. And then, um, you know, I think there's some kind of must haves, you know, again, this, uh, you know, Tracy has taught me a lot um, about this, this work because I came from, you know, a different, well, from nonprofit leadership, but, you know, prior search committee experience someone who you know maybe has uh, hr the executive uh, kind of recruitment and talent management and you know despite the sector right it's very important that you have some of those skills at the table and then um board search committee members need to 
be able to show up, right? There's nothing like, even in an era of Zoom, where you can take interviews and do all of those things or record interviews, it's important for the search committees to be present and to be able to discuss what is happening in real time with their search committee members. And then always, always, always being open-minded and be able to put your personal uh, interests aside um, is so uh, very important. Uh, even again, if you have someone, you know, that you would like to see lead the organization, it's important that you can put those interests aside and be open-minded about the interview process and who uh, should lead the organization. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of a long way of just talking about, you know, the, the, the success of the search committee. Something to add, uh, Rob, to what Christy was talking about in terms of search committee and its composition is, uh, our clients also have this tendency to over rely on job postings or want us to, you know, want to know where you're going to post the job. And we always sort of disabuse them of the notion that that's where they're going to get the greatest yield, even though our, our greatest posting source is always LinkedIn. You know they're like the uh, the mafia. You got to wet their beak. Uh, you can't do uh, work in this in this industry without you know paying that piper. But even through LinkedIn and other posting sources, we expect a yield of less than ten percent of candidates who apply. Interesting. Uh, title and they see you know a, a role and they see an organization. They get all excited, but they don't take the time to ensure that their skills and background truly match up with the must-have skills and abilities for. Uh, that role. So we always say that we want to find the best available talent in the marketplace, but job postings provide you with the best available talent of folks who apply. The best candidates in the marketplace are passive in nature. They're doing well where they are. They don't need to make a move, but perhaps our client's role is their next frontier of challenge. And they are um, interested in at least listening and learning about the opportunity. And we are there to to do that. And they tend to listen to us because they know if we come calling um, that it's a it's a fairly serious role and one that has some credibility. So that's mm -hmm. a tool for us as well. There's another piece that we put in our uh, position profiles. It's an area called measures of first year uh, success. Um, our candidates love it. Our clients love it. It goes into our position profiles. We want to focus the candidate's eyes on what three or four things uh, does that candidate need to get accomplished in year one so that he or she or they have strong momentum going into year two and beyond. It establishes in some ways minimum KPIs for that uh, said individual, gives them a sense for what their first 90 to 180 days may focus on. And it also gives them a sense for how they should be benchmarked and evaluated by their board. What are going to be the metrics that the board uh, agrees upon with the said leader um, to use as a basis for evaluating uh, that particular person as they emerge? One of the other areas that we find particularly uh, important is something that Broadview Talent takes very seriously. We're not just about the transaction of a placement, Rob. We very much are into post-placement consultation. Uh, you know, we all have that one-year guarantee in our sector, uh, but we view ROI in our sector being more three to five, five to seven years. Sure. Uh, we hesitate to go beyond five to seven years nowadays because exchange just will not stay as long as their predecessor baby boomers and millennials will stay uh, even, even less long. Um, but a well-executed onboarding process sort of uh, very much uh, has to be included. And it is a service that we're providing on top of the service that we're delivering uh, for the uh, execution of the of the retained search. But I'm going to let Christy go into a little bit about how she especially uh, has a skill set from her nonprofit um, years of leadership and her community involvement and how we get candidates assimilated um, and integrated into a new environment. Sure. So... 
you know, Rob, of course, we always talk with our with the boards, um, you know, that we're working with and our clients about how they onboard, you know, a candidate. But oftentimes the onboarding, that's, you know, about internal onboarding and preparing them, you know, to lead the organization. You know, making sure they have their milestones or KPIs, you know, setting up, you know, objectives and all of those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, especially, you know, as they prepare for uh, reviews and, and, you know, so forth. But I have found it to be, first of all, CEO, executive director, you know, leadership for profit or nonprofit can be very lonely. You are by you're you're alone. You're by yourself. You're talking to yourself in the mirror. You're talking to your cat, your dog, you know, your spouse. People, you're, you're just like you know. You you need um, to also kind of have you know an understanding of the community in which you're serving, even if you've lived in that community, but especially if you haven't lived in the community. And so we um, can provide a, you know a service as a part of an, you know our search. Uh, work really to help onboard someone in a community. And what does that mean? That means meeting uh, kind of your key stakeholders, meeting some of your professional peers, but get beyond meeting them, getting to know them, being able to set up peer groups where people can, um, new leaders can kind of work together, even if they're from different sectors, but just having that peer set where you can, you know, sometimes I, I say, you, you may need to go cry. You may need to go, you know, pound the table. You may need to go brainstorm. Um, but, but it's a, it's a group of your peers and a, developing a, a bit of, you know, confidence and, and credibility with one another and a bit of safe space. And then if you're new to a community and your family is also, you know, arriving with you and, and even, even if they aren't, how do you set someone up so that it's not just about being successful in the professional at the professional time in their life in the day time, so to speak. But how do you set them up for social success? So, you know, knowing a learning a community, where should I, where can I worship? Where can I get a haircut? Right. Where can I, um, you know, just the, the basic things. Can you recommend a few realtors to me? So really connecting people and helping to connect the dots. I think a community like Columbus has taught me, if nothing else, that we can be very insular. Um, some would say clickish. I disabuse myself of that. We're not clickish, but nevertheless, I realize that it can be difficult to break in and it can be even harder in other communities. And so we try to do our best to onboard someone, or if you want to call it onboarding and outboarding, we want to make sure that they are situated for success inside the organization to lead and outside of the organization to lead. Rob, I'm going to add one additional thing. There's a healthy dose of fear that we um, institute in our search processes by telling the truth. Why is that important? Um, because anybody who knows a nonprofit is only a nonprofit one day a year, and that's the day that it files its tax returns. Otherwise, it's a business that you want to build in excess of revenues over expenses, healthy balance sheet and reserves. That should be the goal. So we're trying to really you know, recruit and retain strong business types who have that level of thinking. But we're also trying to tell them the truth about how much change and transformation they're going to get themselves into. And if we can scare somebody, it's likely that person is not the candidate for the role. Because if you go into a nonprofit organization thinking that it's going to be a cakewalk and you're not ready for the myriad of things that will come your way, then you are not going to be uh, you know, an ideal candidate for our, our clients. And I, I found that some folks in our sector, we like to give what I'll call the primrose path uh, to uh, success um, as opposed to telling folks the truth. They respect you more when they tell the truth. And they also know that we couldn't possibly tell them everything that they're going to encounter 
uh, we call it the uh, 90% of, uh, of, of, uh, of the, uh, the 75% of what uh, clients tell us or what they want us to know uh, is one thing. It's the other 25% that they don't tell us or that they don't want us to know, or sometimes they don't know, ends up being 90% of the major challenges that new leader is going to encounter in year one. And everybody who assumes a role in this in these sectors have to un they understand that and they fundamentally embrace that uh, and they have a demonstrated track record of, uh, of success therein. Un unconscious bias, that's a topic we hear a lot about and, and it can often be a significant hurdle in the, in the recruitment process. How does Broadview Talent Partners work with organizations to eliminate unconscious bias and create a more inclusive hiring environment? And are there specific best practices or training programs you recommend? Yes, indeed. So uh, let's talk about uh, what we do and what we consider best practice based upon how it has worked for us over a period of time. So uh, before I made the pivot, Rob, about 14 years ago into primarily just nonprofit focused executive search, I had a longstanding career, almost 15 years in the for-profit sector. One of the things I learned and a trend that I noticed, um, especially pre-pandemic, um, was that uh, our, our candidates would interview on a, uh, on a Monday. Um, and we would not hear anything from our client until not only the following Monday, sometimes maybe not until the end of that prior week. Uh, we weren't getting uh, feedback back timely, uh, a lot of distractions in it into the process. So I, I, I decided I needed to design something that was going to be more equitable, more fair, and more um, of a tool to prevent unconscious bias, to prevent other sort of distractions and other sort of favoritism from seeping into the process. So we started to do with our nonprofit clients, our for-profit clients, uh, don't they, they claim they don't need this, so they don't use it. Uh, <laughs> do, um, you know, pre-pandemic, we did on-site uh, facilitations of first, second, and final round interviews. Pre, uh, during the pandemic, the first and second rounds of those interviews have been via Zoom, but we are on uh, in the Zoom room uh, with our clients. So we see every candidate interview, we're on um, off mute, I mean, on mute and and and, and off camera, um, but our our, our clients uh, tend to appreciate the fact that we are there uh, as their advisor. Um, we then um, will have during the course of any particular interview round an end of round debrief with our clients, so we're not allowing a lot of time to seep in before we get feedback about what they all encountered, and they can't pull the wool over our eyes about that which occurred during the interview cycle with our candidates because we've heard it. Many of those sessions are recorded as well, not to be shared with the public because some search committee members sometimes can't attend. And we send those recordings to them so they can participate in the debrief. We need that feedback timely while the ideas are fresh in our clients' minds. We need that not to also allow um, for potentially women and people of color to experience bias because somebody has a favorite candidate or horse that they are backing that uh, in many ways may not be in the best interest of the organization, but it's in the best interest of serving the needs of that person's ego, sometimes a very powerful and influential person on your search committee. And we use this on-site facilitation, either via Zoom or in-person as a way of eliminating that to give everybody a level playing field on which to base um, their evaluations and their, and their overall decisions. And it also uh, relaxes our candidates. Our candidates know and they have the trust and credibility with us that we're there for them. Yes, we are, we are representing our client, but we're there for them and we're not going to let um, this run amok in terms of uh, things that can allow unconscious bias to throw things uh, off kilter. That would impact our reputation and would certainly be ruinous to our client. Christy? And, um, you know, I think one of the things that, you know, really helps 
remove that bias is the kind of end of round. We do some end of round debrief so we don't let that time lag, you know, go on. And um, we have those end of round debriefs where everyone from the panel, interview panel, has an opportunity to share. Um, you know, it feels equitable among uh, the, the the members of the panel. Uh, we ask the search committee chair to always go last so that they don't kind of lead, you know, lead the witness, so to speak. And we get that real time feedback. And, you know, that uh, doesn't allow, you know, I've, I've been on search committees and things where, you know, you haven't had those quick round uh, end of round debriefs and somebody goes back and somebody knows somebody and they start asking questions about candidates and things like that and bring that back into the room and you know, that, that's not fair, right, to the candidate. It's also you're getting information that your your colleagues are not getting. There's a time for informal and formal referencing, which is also, a you know, obviously best practice, but um, the end of round debriefs really help us kind of strike while the iron is, is hot and uh, keep that disconnection and disruption of, of you know, kind of the, the process. Yep. Building a robust employer brand that reflects a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion is, is essential. Could you share some examples of organizations that have excelled in this area and what strategies they employed to communicate their DE&I values effectively to potential candidates? Absolutely, Rob. We're going to give you some backdrop first, and then we'll go into two specific examples of clients uh, that we especially um um, view as best practice in this area. So one of the things that we sort of unify around as a firm in our culture is that uh, diversity, equity, inclusion is about winning innovation and creativity in this purest sense that uh, all of our clients who have a strong brand, they understand the concept of winning. Um, they think about sports. They think about being competitive. They think about, um, you know, really matching up uh, with their peer group and doing the best they possibly can. And then recruiting uh, talent that have that similar and like uh, personality and disposition, and then innovation. People can unify around innovation. They think of technology. They think of Silicon Valley. They think of um, you know the ability to leverage you know um, uh, AI and other things that uh, make um, their service or their mission unique uh, in the marketplace. And then their create uh, the creativity is about solving problems. So the backdrop uh, of of what our clients do with their with their employee brands is that. They have an environment, uh, an inclusive culture that, that does this. They have boards that are representative of the community that's being served, that have a similar mentality. They have a C-suite that also represents mm -hmm. this. If they have a dirt in their C-suite, that's usually when they come calling us, or if they have a, a new leader opening, that tends to be a, a place where we can help them uh, excel as well. Their external communications, their marketing, um, you know, uh, social media, uh, presence is very diverse, their annual reports, all the things that they put out in the marketplace can speak to their commitment. And they have this notion, Rob, that it's substance over form. Mm. Um, no one wants to be necessarily affiliated with an organization that um, is doing it just for the sake of PR or just for the sake of this is what we feel that we must do, but it's not really fully ingrained and it's not an organic part of our culture. People can see through that very easily. And my team knows because I'm a big Jackie Robinson uh, fan. He's one of my all-time heroes in life. That nobody wants to be a male or female Jackie Robinson in an environment anywhere, whether it's for-profit or non-profit. And you shouldn't have to be at this stage of of the ball game. So we look at multiple spheres in this regard when we look at our our clients uh, and the things that they bring into the marketplace. Christy, why don't you share it, it, an example it, of a couple well, things to talk about Able too? 
Sure. Um, you know, so able, able advocate for basic legal equality is an organization. It's a legal services organization. So think of, you know, legal aid and those kinds of organizations, strong, strong, uh, immigrant, uh, practice here in in the Columbus area and, and have done groundbreaking work. Um, but they when they hired us, they, they shared with us that they have um, a need to have a leader who, um, you know, yes, of course, is an attorney, uh, must have a license to practice in Ohio, but also has a strong advocacy core, has a strong um, connection to their work to the communities they serve. They serve one of the most diverse parts of Ohio. It's kind of what we call the Southwest Corridor. It stretches from, you know, Toledo, which is, you know, just a stone's throw away from Detroit. So Toledo, Ohio, but down into rural Ohio in a, in a large farming uh, community, an agricultural community, all the way down to the Dayton area, which is largely kind of, you know, manufacturing, right? And so, you know, they, they were very clear about their need for diverse candidates and a diverse pool. Um, and, you know, we're, we're not quite finished with the search. We're, we're close, but we were able to deliver, you know, candidates that had not only, you know, the legal experience, but some with lived experience and some other things. And it was very important to them. And they took their time in the search committee uh, and community partners on this search committee. And this is a search committee that has violated the seven to nine person or the, you know, five, three, four, five, whatever, five to five to nine rule, right? There are like 13 people on the search committee, but nevertheless, um, you know, really spend spending the time focusing on the, the values of the organization and communicate the values of the organization directly to the, to the uh, candidates. And so I think that's going to yield them with a great result here in the, in the very near future. Tracy, you should mention kind of the Propel example, which I think is one of the best examples. Yeah, Rob, we did a search. We literally just wrapped it up recently. Um, uh, a search uh, by the name of Propel Nonprofits. It's in Minneapolis, uh, um, Minnesota. Mm. Uh, they are a CDFI, a community development financial institution that uh, is unique unto themselves in that they're one of the only of its kind that provides not only uh, a loan fund or lending to small business communities and their disadvantaged communities who can't get loans through traditional uh, means and, and banking relationships, but they also do capacity building uh, services for other nonprofits, primarily in the state of Minnesota and some of the contiguous states. And one of the most en enjoyable things about this experience for us is that they had not only had a very diverse board, uh, a very diverse search committee, a very diverse transition committee. So they had prepared almost uh, 18 months in advance for the notion of this uh, leader transition. The outgoing leader, Kate Barr, an absolute uh, you know, uh, dynamic uh, personality and leader in this sector for a long time and legend, uh, was truly ready mentally, financially, uh, and spiritually to make this move. She made hires thinking about this over the past year, including one person who ended up being um, you know, uh, uh, considered internally for uh, the role um, and somebody who she thought was uh, highly favored. While that person did not win, um, that person did more than, um, you know, showed well. Um, and she had a desire that she uh, translated to the search committee that they wanted to make sure that they made a diverse hire in this mode. Many of the organizations that they serve, um, um, serve disadvantaged and diverse communities. And they thought that it was clearly time, especially in the post George Floyd era. And, you know, Minneapolis was at the epicenter of the George Floyd, Absolutely. you know, uh, our murder and, and all of its aftermath. Um, and we were able to deliver a 100% uh, diverse uh, 
uh, a pool of, of 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 candidates, and our two our two finalists were 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 uh, uh, men of color, and our finalists uh, who will be announced soon is a uh, is a a leader in this space of uh, Latino descent and very much a uh, a well known name nationally and um, and uh, and locally, and our client is is very happy. We believe it's going to be a strong and and happy marriage. But it was great planning and partnering with us, and openness and receptivity. Um, to uh, bring a process that was fair and equitable. And it was in keeping with their values and their brand. And it also made it easier for us when we were delivering messages in the marketplace that this is a place where you want to work. It's an employer of choice. And there's some huge credibility here. And there's some great opportunities to grow and expand. We expect that one of the cool things about this role, Rob, is that this role might expand uh, 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 nationally. They may be doing work outside of just their contiguous area because more so many nonprofits need the capacity building services alone um so there's a new vision that can be established and that is also another bright thing for our client that's tremendous uh, long-term success and talent acquisition requires foresight and adaptability what mm-hmm. trends or emerging practices do you foresee in the recruitment landscape particularly in relation to diversity and inclusion and how can organizations prepare to stay competitive in the years to come well, there's a lot here. Uh, there's a lot that we have noticed, especially post March of 2020, when we were in the lockdown mode within the pandemic. Uh, and you know, we operate primarily in that nonprofit sector, whether it's affordable housing, community development, um, you know, human service foundations and associations, and the like. And what we've noticed is that very much like uh, the increase in the real estate uh, markets in most major metros across the country, there was a huge uh, pressure put on many of our nonprofit organizations to maintain competitiveness on the compensation side. Historically, most folks who were leaders in these organizations, they only got paid base salaries. Yes, they had 401ks and sometimes pension plans and what have you, but we had never seen, Rob, organizations, nonprofit organizations compete with one another stringently Mm. uh, um, to to, uh, win this uh, sort of war uh, for talent. So they had to get more creative with their benefits packages. They had to increase you know, PTO, they had to add 457B plans, they had to increase sign-on bonus uh, bonuses, uh, they had to reload folks when in the past they had not chosen to do so because they had to do searches that were going to bring talent outside of their areas. And then they had to also deal with this notion of remote versus hybrid versus in-market work, uh, something that obviously um, has been a major change in our society as a result of of, mm-hmm. of the pandemic but you know it has been positive for the most part um, but it's also forced them to um, take a good hard look at uh, you know uh, equitable compensation not just at that ceo and c-suite level but below that level too and getting um, boards um, arms around that to do enough fundraising and get enough resources in there to retain the most talent that they possibly can um, but we've also had to get them comfortable and christy will talk more about this with the notion that they're going to lose some talent faster than they have in the past because the actions, the millennials, the Gen Zs, uh, the iGens just move a lot more quickly and they just don't have that same level of loyalty and they have what we call functional ADD. It doesn't require a pivot to that, um, but it does require an understanding of their mentality that they get bored quickly, sometimes want to move on to other things and we have to make sure that our clients are mentally ready for that. Christy? And it also, um, Tracy, I think we've seen during this time, you know, really this this notion and shift of um, 
you know, the organization, making sure that they are in, they are truly in recruitment mode. And so it is about, you know, creating a positive experience for the candidates, because especially passive candidates, they are usually in roles where they're pretty, you know, happy and just kind of, you know, moving, moving through life and moving along. And, and so, you know, it's like, you're recruiting me. And, you know, we think about recruitment. Sometimes we've seen it, you know, in the for-profit sector, certainly. And, you know, we think again, our sports analogies of, you know, recruiting talent. Um, but, you know, you want to make sure that you set yourself up for success and, you know, that you are, uh, sharing, you know, transparent about the organization that you are kind of embracing, you know, candidates or giving them good feedback, um, really nurturing that positive candidate ex- experience. Um, I was, I was recently in an interview, you know, with, uh, a, a client. We were at the final kind of round of interviews and, uh, you know, someone mentioned, you know, how someone answered one of the questions and, you know, one of the panelists said, well, remember, we're recruiting, we're recruiting him, right? So he's going to lead with what is most important for him to, to make this move across the country and come into this role. And we're recruiting him. So he's not giving us the answer, you know, that we want to hear. He's giving us, he's telling the truth, right? He's being very, very clear with that. And I think, um, you know, kind of as we you know, bring this home, we think about organizations have to prepare to stay competitive for the years to come because it's talent recruitment. It's only going to get harder. I think, um, you know, not easier. And um, again, because we are working with the millennials and the exgens and how soon have they moved, they also start businesses. See, it, it appears more quickly than maybe we might start have started businesses in, in our, you know, uh, working experience. Uh, they do other things. They have all these other interests. And so uh, the, you know, time and attention that it takes to recruit that talent is going to be so important. And I say always to organizations, you know, you have to create a positive and inclusive culture and you need to have a growth mindset. You have a growth mindset. If you appear to be stagnant, people don't want to, you know, they won't, they won't stay. They won't feel as if they belong. Oh, so very true. I mean, uh, Rob, as we wrap this up as well, we want to encourage our clients to continue to meet their workforce where they are. Uh, don't ever accept obviously mediocre performance in any way, shape or form, but yeah. if somebody has found Northern star during the course of this post pandemic era by working a hybrid schedule or working from home, and they're even willing to forego uh promotions as a result of this let that be um don't mm-hmm. force them to uh, a situation where they're not most comfortable and is not really focusing on their wellness and their work-life balance of anything that we've learned as a result of losing relatives friends associates colleagues during the course of this pandemic that life is, is short um and that uh you know everything is not about work uh when it all comes down to it but you want people to show up each and every day ready to compete but put them in the best position to do that i understand this whole notion of culture but i also know the notion that culture is sometimes wrapped in a notion to uh get the return on investment on our corporate real estate more than it is about teamwork and and culture so don't be overly stringent or feel like you have to go back and do what the money center investment banks are doing on wall street um because you know many of them are still struggling with that as well but they have greater resources and they can replace people a lot more easily than our nonprofit uh clients can so in order to facilitate this notion of of uh, retention you know provide that 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 positive uh environment this notion of recruitment um know that there's going to be more churn and burn and that you won't have that long tenured leader like you once did but you want to shoot for three to five five to seven years for your senior leadership and also promote an, an, a 
a uh, culture of hiring as if you're um, preparing for that rainy day. We used to say if somebody got hit by a bus, people don't like that analogy as much. But we say if somebody wins the lottery, they become unfirmed or, or infirmed or something just happens that changes their mind and mindset about wanting to continue. Are you ready in your organization or are you always going to have to go out externally to find that talent? You know, we don't mind doing work externally, but we like to also promote within our clients the spirit of of, of, of succession planning and thinking about uh, you know their workforce, but knowing for, that you're gonna have to do it a lot more quickly than ever before. And making sure you have board members that also um, are, are, are aware of and they understand that um, and they've been through this cycle. This, they're badges of honor for those who have led during a, pan, a pandemic. And we're more inclined as a firm to find those candidates that have that demonstrated success. There's also people who imploded during this time frame, and those are the ones that we want to stay away from. And many of them have decided to retire anyway. So uh, we look forward to um, you know continued uh, success uh, in this realm, and we know there's going to be more things that we have to be ever mindful of. And for our listeners, it's a lot to unpack that you've given us today, but it's been great information, Tracy and Christy, and I, I, I thank you both so much. And Kim is on, although not speaking, but I want to give her a shout-out as well because she was absolutely essential in setting this up. Uh, you were all wonderful to, to speak with today, and I thank you so much. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Rob. Tracy and Christy, thank you both for joining the show today. I hope that this podcast provides our listeners with a strong understanding of your platform. I wish you and Broadview Talent Partners continued success and hope to host you on future podcasts. That's all the time we have here today. Alongside Tracy McMillan and Christy Angel of Broadview Talent Partners, I'm Rob Adams, and this has been Talent Talks.